children. I will tell you, we took this class, Kathy and I did, decades ago when our gir girls were small. We taught this class for years. I think we might have taught the Schwensons. I, I, we did, okay. But anyway, can't recommend it too highly. It's great information, and if you take it to heart, your kids will be all the better for it. Your parenting will be a real step of discipleship, so highly recommend that. Uh, to the image, that's actually better than the one that I use on top of my study sheet, but I'm starting a new series this morning working through the New Testament letter from James, so working through the New Testament letter of James. If you open your Bible, if you're not sure where James is, it's a small book, it's right at the end of Hebrews, that's a bigger letter, 13 chapters, right in front of 1 Peter. I will tell you before I forget, and with this apology, it's Bible light this morning. It's Bible light this morning. We're not going to get really into James. I want to give an introduction to the book that I helps you be enthusiastic about the lessons it has. And I say this for this reason. I was talking to a friend recently and I said, I'm going to be teaching through the book of James. And the immediate response was, James is one of my least favorite books in the Bible. And that's not without reason. If you've read this epistle, you know that it's really, it's a hard-hitting, can sound harsh, blunt instrument. And all of that is for a reason, of course. But for that reason, for a lot of folks, James is not a favorite book. Also, if you think of this, uh, if you said, I have a historic quotation about the book of James, it's probably from Martin Luther. So this is famous or infamous, his statement on this letter. Listen to this. He wrote, and this is a comparison or a contrast of some of the other New Testament books with James specifically. So Luther wrote this, in a word, St. John's Gospel and his first epistle, St. Paul's epistles, especially Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians, and St. Peter's first epistle are the books that show you Christ and teach you all that is necessary and salvatory for you to know, even if you were never to see or hear any other book or doctrine. So Luther says, read any of this and you get Christ and you get the gospel. Then in contrast, he wrote, therefore, St. James' epistle is really an epistle of straw compared to these others, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. That was Martin Luther, you know, the key reformer, his take on James. Now, having said that, in fairness, we would also say he quoted from James almost as much as, as the Synoptic Gospels, and he taught on or through James five different times. So it's not, he didn't reject its authority or its authenticity. He just said, compared to these other books, it just doesn't stack up because you don't see Christ as fully in it. At this morning, my hope is to introduce the letter from James through a lens that helps make sense of what James says and why he says it to be aware of the context in which the letter is written so that its lessons are ones we can embrace instead of avoiding. So here's the a, here's a thing. Have you ever met someone and maybe they come across as cold or backward or you've, you've just met them for the first time and there's just something about them that you're just like, they're just not my cup of tea until someone else maybe tells you something about them and why they may come across the way they did, what formed them or something along that line, and then you're like, okay, I get it now. 
because I have a frame of reference or I have a lens by which I can see then and interpret them. And that's what we want to do for James. Now, candidly, I've thought about teaching James uh, probably for at least three years, and I, I've avoided it. And I've avoided it because I know that I can have a tendency to be a hammer, and, and James is a hammer on an anvil. And I just didn't want to be heavy. I didn't want to be heavy-handed. And so the introduction, this was as much for me uh, as it is for you guys, so that uh, what I want us to do is uh, have a sense of both the letter and the person who wrote it and what informed the person who wrote it so that we have a context on the front end that really invites us to see James, I think, in the way God means for us to. If we get that wrong, then it can be for us too, one of our least favorite books. But I think if we see it in the light God wants us to, I think we'll be all over it. So first, and hopefully you have study sheets on this, who is James? And that's really where we're going this morning. Who is James? Who's the guy that wrote this letter? If you look at James 1.1, the introduction is brief. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion Greetings. So the James, James wrote this, and he wrote it to Jewish Christians who had, did, who, excuse me, who had been dispersed through Jerusalem and Judea outside those areas through early persecution. You know, when you read the Acts of the Apostles, you hear about these times in which the church experienced persecution, and so Christians, Jewish believers, early Jewish believers in Jesus, would flee to a place of safety. That's who he's writing to, but how do we know what James this is. Do you guys know, uh, if you grew up in an Irish uh, Catholic family, you know there's a lot of Patricks, a lot of Aarons, there's a lot of Michaels too, because it comes with the territory. James is one of the most dominant names in the Old or New Testament for a reason. So we say James today, but what's, what's the Hebrew word name that James comes from? It's Jacob. Jacob and James are the same name. Yaakovos in Hebrew becomes Jacob and James. It's the same person. It's the same name. So Jacob is the patriarch. So you can imagine lots of little Jewish boys were named James. So if you say, well, who wrote this letter? James. Then you're talking about, okay, let's, let's look in the text and let's see who's referenced in the text. So when you look in the scriptures, we know that there's an apostle named James, right? James and John, the brothers, the sons of Zebedee. So James and John. James is one of the apostles. And so it's fair to ask, is that James the one who wrote this letter? Because that would be a natural choice. And we assume probably not for this reason. You know, Stephen in Acts 7 is the first martyr, but James is not far behind in Acts 12. So Acts 12, verse 1, about 42 A.D., the text says, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. James didn't live long after the resurrection. He wasn't around very long. And we're guessing this letter, there's, there's a couple reasons for this. Probably the letter was written in the mid to late 40s. It was probably written before the council at Jerusalem. So there's a couple markers and we say, James, this James probably wasn't around long enough. The other likely candidate is James, Jesus' brother. Now, we say brother, and we mean half-brother, right? 
because they didn't share the same father, but they shared the same mother. So this is Matthew 13, 55. So when Jesus came back to his hometown and he's speaking, and those people that he grew up with, they're questioning, who does this guy think he is? Because we, we knew him, we know his family. So this is said, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? So Jesus had brothers, and if this is in birth order, James would have been the second born son in Joseph and Mary's family. Now we have more than that in the New Testament about James. These are all on your study sheet too, by the way. This is the same James that the Apostle Paul writes about in the epistle to the Galatians. So early in the life of the church, guess is around 36 AD or so, and there's differences of opinion when you're trying to do the chronology of Paul and his, his conversion and where he went when and how do you line up Acts with Galatians and we're not getting into all of that. But early in the life of the church, the Apostle Paul went to Jerusalem. And this is in part what was said. Paul wrote Galatians 1.19, I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So when Paul's there early in the life of the church, he identifies James as among the apostles in Jerusalem. In chapter 2, verse 9, he says, When James and Cephas, which would be Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, pillars of the church in Jerusalem, sort of some of the main leadership there, uh, they perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. What you see is early in the life of the church, though James was not an original of the 12 apostles, he rose in leadership ranks in the early church in very, very short order. This comes up again in Acts 15. You, you know, you get this sense when you read through Acts. What are the Jews, you know, these Gentiles are saying they believe in Jesus. What do we do with them? How do we think about that? How do we interact with them? So in Acts 15, the church in Jerusalem, which was the mothership, remember everybody had dispersed through there, they have a council. And James is there and the others are there and they're trying to figure out, you know, what do we do? What do we tell them? And so it's James, after much discussion, he's the bottom line for the church when he summarizes it for everyone else. He was a key authority and he says, well, this is what we should write and so this is what we do. So Jesus' brother, his half-brother James, was a key element, a key leader in the early church almost from the opening days. Also, the Jewish historian Josephus, I hope you guys are okay with history this morning, uh, who lived at the same time as James. You remember Josephus was a Jew who was a military leader during the Roman War. Josephus lived through all of that. And so he wrote about Israel's history as well as the time around Jesus and the birth of the church. Josephus said, this is the James that wrote that letter. It's Jesus' brother. As well as Josephus, Eusebius, who wrote in the late 200s and early 300s after uh, A.D., stated that the author of this letter was James, the Lord's brother. Now, I'm, I'm going to read you a little bit here in just a second. James was called... James the just or James the righteous to distinguish him from the many other James that would have been around in the early church. They called him James the just or James the righteous because he was, 
He was by life and practice and reputation, he was a devout man. You know, Mark in his prayer talked about sometimes you'll have a profession about the kind of person I am, but it doesn't agree with reality. Well, his piety, his, his holy life was so consistent that when they wanted to differentiate him from someone else, they just said James the righteous one, James the just. That's how he was known. James was not only known for Christ-like piety in his life, but also in his death. Guys, I'm going to read you sections of an account of his death. This is from Eusebius around 300 AD, and I'll, I'll qualify it this way. James is martyred about 62 AD. And there are at least two or three different accounts about his death. And so Josephus has a very short account, and a guy named Clement has another account. And we're going to read Eusebius, and he quotes a guy named Hegesippus, his account. Now, they, they agree on the big rocks, but they don't agree. The one I'm going to read you is frankly more colorful and has far more detail than the very brief account you'll read in Josephus. And the point here is to show you this. This is the kind of guy that wrote this letter. This is not only what he was like in life, this is what he was like facing death. So, this is uh, starting from Eusebius. Uh, when Paul appealed to Caesar, you remember he had been arrested in Jerusalem. They shipped him to Caesarea and, and they're going to keep him there in prison. And he says, I got another way out. I want to go to Caesar. So about 62 AD, when Paul appealed to Caesar and was sent to Rome by Festus, that's the Roman governor, the Jews were disappointed in their hope regarding the plots they had devised against him. And they turned against James, the Lord's brother, the author of this letter. He says, uh, how James died has already been shown by a previous quotation from Clement, who says that he was thrown down from the parapet, that would be the top of the temple, and clubbed to death. So that's sort of a concise thing. He was thrown down from the temple and clubbed. But the most accurate account of him, according to Eusebius, is given by Hegesippus, who came in the generation after the apostles, so second generation in the life of the church, and this is what he wrote in part. He used to enter the temple alone and was often found kneeling and imploring forgiveness for the people so that his knees became hard like a camel's from his continual kneeling in worship of God and in prayer for the people. Leading right up to his death, Jews, scribes, and Pharisees were saying that the whole populace was in danger of expecting Jesus as the Christ. So they assembled and said to James, so, so not Messianic Jews, Orthodox Jews talking about Jewish believers. We call on you, James, to restrain the people since they've gone astray after Jesus, believing Him to be the Christ. We call on you to persuade all who come for the Passover, so the Passover was imminent, concerning Jesus since all of us trust you. We and the entire populace can vouch for the fact that you're righteous and take no one at face value. You're a man without prejudice. So do persuade the crowd not to err regarding Jesus since we and all the people respect you. Stand on the parapet of the temple where you can be clearly seen from the height and your words be heard by all the people with all the tribes and Gentiles too gathered for the Passover. So the scribes and Pharisees made James stand on the temple parapet and they shouted to him, O righteous one whom we all ought to believe since the people are going astray after Jesus who was crucified 
tell us what does the door of Jesus mean? If you remember from John 10, Jesus said, I'm not only the shepherd, the good shepherd, but I'm the door. I'm the access point to God. What does that mean? He replied with a loud voice, Why do you ask me about the Son of Man? He is sitting in heaven at the right hand of the great power, and He will come on the clouds of heaven. Many were convinced and rejoicing at James' testimony, crying, Hosanna to the Son of David, just like Palm Sunday. So they went up and threw down the righteous one. And they said to each other, Let us stone James the just. And they began to stone him, since the fall had not killed him. But he turned and knelt down, saying, I implore you, O Lord God and Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. While they were pelting him with stones, one of the priests among the sons of the Rechabites, this is a Jewish family that comes up in Jeremiah the prophet in the Old Testament, to whom the prophet Jeremiah bore witness, cried out, Stop! What are you doing? The righteous one is praying for you. Then one of the laundrymen took a club that he used to beat out clubs and hit the just on the head. Such was his martyrdom. They buried him on the spot by the temple and his gravestone is still there by the temple. He became a true witness to both Jews and Gentiles that Jesus is the Christ. So when we think of this epistle, we're, we're seeing the lens that a guy who, and we'll talk more about this in a minute, but he grew up with Jesus, he lived for Christ, and he died for Christ. So this is a guy we should take seriously. To James's goal, so he's sitting down to write this letter, just one letter, five chapters. What was he after? So in all the things he says, when we read through James, what is James after? I think James was doing the same thing in his letter that Jesus had done during, and especially the Synoptic Gospels. I think this is the key to the heart of the letter. James was being blunt and direct and even brutal in his honesty because he knew the people he was addressing were deceived and self-deceived. And James warns his friends regarding this deception. Guys, what you'll see in this, if you compare the synoptic gospels with the gospel of John, if you read a little bit of theology, here's one of the questions that will often come up between Paul and the synoptic gospels. Does Paul preach the same gospel Jesus did? And you've got to qualify the question because it, it implies some different things. John wrote his gospel, John 20, 31, to tell you to believe in Jesus and believing you'll be saved, you'll have life in his name. That's not why the synoptics were written, not, not with the same background or same context. So as you think of James and you think of his brother Jesus, what, what kind of interface did Jesus have with the Jewish community he addressed? So there's some followers, right? Some hear him and believe. Uh, he, Mark quoted Isaiah on the front end, but many don't. Many give lip service, but there's no heart transformation. And so most of what you see in the Synoptic Gospels is Jesus arguing with a group that says one thing and lives another. And James has that same bent. He's speaking to a group that says one thing but they're living another. And that's why he comes across as a hammer. Chapter 1, verse 16, James says, Don't be deceived, my brothers. Why? Be because you are being deceived. Verse 22, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. This isn't somebody else giving you a line. This is you giving your own heart a line. You're deceiving yourselves. Verse 26, If anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, 
that person's religion is worthless. James has the same take with Jewish believers who claimed faith but didn't live it. And he comes across the same way Jesus did to the Jews in his day, in his ministry years, who said one thing and lived another. And so just as Jesus was indicting his generation for their false profession, James has that attitude towards people in his day in the early church who were saying one thing, but they weren't living it. The kindest thing and the most loving thing James could do for such people is to confront the difference between what they said and what they did, between their profession and the way they lived life. James' message is a call to repentance to those who claim to be following Jesus. And guys, this has at least two facets. For some people hearing James, just like some who heard Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus is challenging them because they say they believe, but they don't. They're not in living relationship with Christ. And some of those James is addressing, in fact, there's one section of James where most of the commentators believe he's actually shifted gears. He's not talking to Christians anymore. He's talking to people who are unsaved. We'll look at that later. Some of the people that heard Jesus and some of the people who heard James were not believers, but they told themselves they were for a a, a number of reasons. Others who heard James were stuck in in a frame of life where I've trusted Jesus as my Messiah, He's my Savior, but I don't live like it. I don't live like it. I've said this very often, but as a young Christian, I knew I was going to heaven. I heard the gospel and I got it. Jesus died for my sins and I have eternal life. I got it. But guys, my life was untransformed basically for about two and a half years. James' epistle was written for people like me in those years. Mike, you're saying one thing. You're claiming Christ on one hand. You need to see the evidence of that in the way you live. And we'll get to this thing about what do we believe? What do we merely say we believe? And what do we really believe? And basically, you see, at the end of the day, what you do reflects what you really believe. Not just what you say, but what you do. Unlike John's gospel or some of Paul's epistles, James is not writing to tell people how to get saved. That was Martin Luther's point. He is writing, though, to people who say they are already saved, but they don't look like it. They don't live like it. Uh, When I was... uh, Uh, two and a half years in as a Christian, I told a guy, I said, I prayed to accept Christ two and a half years ago, but my life doesn't look much different now than it did then. that's, That's the problem. That's the trouble. It should. It didn't. Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. That's James. James is wounding for their benefit. Or Romans 2, verse 4, the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. And of course, repentance always leads to life and more life. Just as Jesus challenged the reality of the faith of the Jewish nation in his time, James challenges the claims and the faith of fellow Jews in his own days. And as you read this, James is the most uh, Old Testament-like book in the New Testament. It's got proverbial wisdom. It comes across a little bit like the book of Proverbs. He's kind of a hammer like some of the Old Testament prophets were. But again, it's the thought of wounding in kindness or in love. Uh, His letter is a 
reality check. To those who said they had faith but didn't live like it. James wrote to people who had God's Word and who sometimes read it. Sometimes they read it, but they didn't live it. James wrote to people claiming to follow a Savior who embraced the lowly while they gave preference to the wealthy. If you know James well, you know I'm just hitting some of the highlights here. James wrote to people who claimed to have faith, but whose lives didn't demonstrate that faith. James wrote to those who believed they kept God's law, but they failed to keep the royal law of love horizontally. James wrote to people who liked the sound of their own voices, but failed to grasp the level of responsibility their words required. James 3, we'll get into that. James wrote to those who claimed divine wisdom, but who were really pursuing their own selfish, in fact, even demonic ambitions. James wrote to those asking for God's blessings on things God could never and would never bless. God bless here, bless this way, things God would never, never bless. Is it possible to tell our things one, tell ourselves one thing while we're living another? And this is where this, uh, this series title is Reality Check, because that's what James really is. You say something, how do you live? What's real for you? Reality check. You know, you can don Apple, Apple computers, by the way. Did you guys see this? This was just released a week ago, their new headset thing. You know, I was curious about it, so I priced it, Brian, online. You know what these, do you know what their version of this starts at? $3,500. $3,500. It's a computer, but the alternate reality thing is a big deal. So, you know, you can go to Best Buy, you can buy this headset, you can load the software, you can golf in Scotland or New Zealand in your living room, you know, right here. You, you can be on the beach of Hawaii or, you know, in the mountains in Switzerland and never leave your house. And guess what, guys? It's all pretend, isn't it? It's pretend on steroids because we've got the technology to do it. But it's just, it's just pretend. So it's an alternate reality, but alternate means it's, it's actually not real. It's not reality, alternate or not. So the question for us is, are we legit or are we pretending? So this is a reality check. You've got something similar to this, and I just uh, pull this up as a comparison. If you go, so James near the end of the New Testament, if you go to the very end of the Old Testament, you've got a book that's a little bit like James, and it's the, it's the book of Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. And in Malachi's days, you've got Jews who are back in the land of promise. They've got a temple up, and they're worshiping, and what you've got is God comes to them, and He says, I've got a problem with you. They were bored with God, so they offered deficient worship. They were bored with their spouses. This was uh, aging husbands. So they divorced their wife and get a younger model. They gave God a nod and spare change and wondered why God wasn't pleased with them. And so the formula in Malachi is God says, I got an issue with you. And they say, what do you mean, God? We're doing the do. And then he, he explicates, he explains, no, this is what you say and this is what you do. So Malachi, at the end of the Old Testament, it's a reality check to the Jews of his day. And James serves that same function near the end of the New Testament as well. We're saying one thing, is it what we do? It is a reality check. Uh, consider James' influences. And again, I want us to know enough of the guys that when we read the letter, we're thinking of what he was like. 
So James grew up with Jesus as his older brother. What did that look like? A brother who never sinned. He spoke the truth in love, never sinned. God the Son is your older brother. What What does that look like? And not only is Jesus his older brother, half-brother of course, uh, but he's in a, he is in a really a faithful, dynamic Jewish home and family. His parents are devout. We know that from the Gospels, Joseph and Mary. They kept covenant faithfulness. You know, they would go to the temple. They, they jumped through the hoops that the law required. But it was legit. It was real. That's the household. In fact, we had uh, some testimonies this morning in Sunday school. And uh, at least one of us was like, I grew up in a devout Christian home. Well, James did too. That's, that's a thing. That, that's formative for you. John 7 tells us that in Jesus' ministry years, his brothers did not believe in him. John 7, his brothers do not believe in him. That would have included James. And they kind of mock him. They say, hey, you want to be famous and you want people to know you, go up, go up to Jerusalem for the... For the uh, festival, and uh, that's his brothers mocking him. Maybe James, maybe that was his voice, I don't know. James would have heard Jesus' preaching. Now, not necessarily all of it, probably not all of it, not everywhere. He probably didn't travel with him, but he certainly would have heard enough. And one of the things you see in the synoptics is Jesus' family, his mother, and his siblings coming to him because they think he's lost his mind. They're coming to save Jesus from Jesus. So James would have been there for some of this. And primarily what I'm thinking of here is something like the Sermon on the Mount. So again, when you read the Synoptic Gospels, you're reading an account. In fact, think of it this way. I hope this doesn't sound like heresy, but just stick with me. When you read the Synoptics, you're reading an Old Testament story until the resurrection. Because it's the Old Covenant. And so if you just shifted, if you took the New Testament, the Gospels, before Jesus, let's just say if you wanted to make the crucifixion the dividing point, and you put them all with Malachi, they'd fit. Why? Because at one level, Jesus is a Jewish prophet speaking to God's covenant people under the law, no different than Jeremiah, Isaiah, Malachi, you go on. You see what I mean? The setting. So why does Jesus talk the way he does? Because he doesn't, the synoptics don't come across like John's gospel, do they? At all. They're very different. Why? Because they really reveal the way in which he was challenging the Jews just like Malachi was. They needed to be challenged. They're living under the law. They're God's covenant people, but they're not God's covenant people in heart, in faithfulness. And so Jesus challenges them. That's, guys, that's what James would have heard. He would have heard those messages from Jesus to people who said one thing, we've got our place with God, but who didn't live it. The people who heard Jesus were thoroughly religious. Many of them were entirely self-deceived, holding to a form of religion, but denying its power. Consider just two examples from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5.21, you've heard that it was said of old, don't murder. If you murder, you're going to be judged. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother is liable to the council. Whoever says you fool is liable to the hell of fire. And you're like, hold on. What do you mean? So maybe we've done this ourselves. We say something like, by the way, have you ever talked to someone and 
and you're sharing the gospel, you have the conversation, and you say, do you think you'll go to heaven? And a lot of people say, well, I hope so. And kind of the thought is this. I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. In fact, maybe on the curve, I'm pretty good. That just doesn't take you very far, does it? So Jesus says to those who say, well, I'm a pretty good person. I've never killed anyone. And that's part of the law, right? Don't murder. That's part of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus says, not so fast. Uh, Physical murder is the last action on something that started in your heart. And you had murder in your heart. And so you're checking a box. I'm okay. I didn't kill anyone. But God's looking at your heart and saying, no, but you have murder in your heart. What you really are, you you didn't express it yet, but what you really are is you're a murderer in the thoughts and intentions of your mind and your heart. You're not okay with God because you haven't murdered anyone in action because you're a murderer in your heart. Same thing with lust. You've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. I say that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with in his heart. So the guy says, hey, I'm, I'm a faithful husband. And God says, but are you? You may not have been sleeping with your neighbor's wife, but what's going on in the mind? What's, what's going on in the theater of the mind? What's going on in the heart? So Jesus is speaking to a group that made a claim of godliness. They practiced religion while their hearts remained cold to God and to others. Those Jesus was addressing were comfortable with their version of religion checking off external boxes of rules-keeping, but remaining hateful, lustful, hard-hearted, and unforgiving internally. And guys, just remember this. The people Jesus challenges for the reality of their faithfulness to Yahweh, what do they end up doing? They crucify Him. And And the people, it's not the same group, but what happens to James for doing the same thing? He's martyred. Jesus spoke to call them to repentance and therefore to life, telling them they were like the people of the prophet Isaiah's day. For some of us, Isaiah 6 is a favorite passage. It's a glorious passage. It's uh, God calling Isaiah. Did I say that right? Isaiah, Isaiah 6, to himself as a prophet. And so Isaiah sees God's glory. It's a great passage. But then people forget. But it's actually introducing judgment on God's people. Because God tells Isaiah, okay, you'll be my man And this is what you're going to do. You're going to say, seeing, you won't perceive. And hearing, you won't understand. Because God was bringing about judgment. Well, that's what Jesus said of the Jewish economy in his own day. James would have heard some of that message. In fact, some of that message was for James. Because he went from being Joseph's brother, half-brother physically but rejecting the claims of his brother as God the Son on earth until at some point, and we don't know when, don't know what this looked like, he went from saying Jesus is my brother to Jesus. He doesn't say anything about his brother here, does he? Jesus is my God and my Savior. At some point, what what had been a concept and real faith for others became real for James too. We just don't know when. I think James' letter borrows the same spirit that animated Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, but it's addressed to the church. Um, There's a new book out. I've passed some of these copies out to different ones in the church. It's called Do You Believe? It's by Paul David Tripp. And it's it's a book of theology. It's a book of doctrine. And if I say that, most of you would just check out. But here's the thing. It's not a typical book. 
So he's going through, I can't remember if it's 10 or 12 major doctrines with this lens. Do you live this or do you just give lip service to it? Listen to what he says at the front of his book. A couple excerpts. He wrote, I could give example after example of a dichotomy, a difference, the distinction that exists in so many of us and still exists in some places in my own life between what we say we believe and the way we live. And I'm persuaded that the gap between the doctrine we say we believe and the way we actually live is a workroom for the enemy. The enemy of your soul will gladly give you formal theology if in your real daily life he can control the thoughts and motives of your hearts and in so doing control the way you act, react, and respond. He says the primary purposes of the doctrines of God's Word is not information, I know something, or say I know something, but transformation. The informative function of truths of Scripture is not the goal of those truths, but a necessary means to the goal of those truths, which is radical personal transformation. God's plan is that when the rain of biblical doctrine falls on us, it would change us. Not that we would become better renditions of ourselves, but that we would become spiritually different than we were before. The doctrines of the Word of God were not intended just to lay claim on your brain, but also to capture your heart and transform the way you live. Those doctrines are meant to turn you inside out and your world upside down. Doctrine is something you live in even the smallest and most mundane moments of life. He concludes in part, Many of us are willing to live with functional inconsistency between the truths that we declare we believe and how we choose to live. So it must be said that the truths you actually believe are the truths that you live because faith is never just intellectual assent. More importantly, biblical faith is a commitment of the heart that radically alters the way you live and this is his conclusion, truth not lived is truth not believed. That if in fact you really believe it, you act on it. Truth not lived, that's a great line, is truth not believed. Trip, like James, is warning us against the dichotomy, the difference between what we tell ourselves and what we really believe. And that's why James is a reality check. James is doing the same thing for those in the church Jesus did for the Jews. He's saying, you say one thing, how do you live? What's the reality? Based on what we do, based on what we do, what do we really believe? Based on what I do, what do I really believe? Guys, we need God's Word to challenge us to compare what we say we believe with what we really believe. Now, it is possible, I grant you, and this was certainly true of the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day, it's possible to read your Bible and remain spiritually dead and hardened. And in that sense, I'm just, I'm making the information the thing. I'm gaining some kind of status because I know something others don't know, or I've memorized it, or somehow this gives me status. It, that's possible. But if the Spirit of God is in you and you're exposing yourself to the truth of God daily in His Word, what you'll find is you're challenged. You'll be challenged day in and day out by the truth of God's Word. Not just challenged, comforted, encouraged, but God's Word is living, His Spirit is living, and He'll use it. 
So we need God's Word like James. We need friends like James who love us enough to call us out. And we need to be a friend like James who's willing to call others out. So just pause for a minute. Do you know, do you have anyone in your life who's willing to call you out and say, this isn't okay? Or I heard this, is this true? Do you have any friends that are willing to call you out when you need to be? And do you have any friends that you're willing to call out like James did? And not, not because you're being judgmental, but because you love them and care about them. We need James's in both directions. James is supremely applicable for the church today. And when I say the church, I mean this church. I mean us. I mean you and I mean me. I don't mean somebody out there. Because guys, we live in a time in which even though uh, religious claims broadly are still shrinking as far as the population in the United States, people who claim any kind of faith are diminishing as a percentage of the population. Still for many who claim religious faith and specifically those who claim Christian faith, the surveys pretty much have shown for decades that there's little difference and sometimes none between the way we live from the world. Most of the statistics, and I, I've been reading uh, these surveys off and on for probably 30 years, they're very consistent, that a significant portion of those who claim faith in Jesus don't live like it. They live like the world. There's no transformation. Tripp's point is the Scripture, the work of God in salvation and the Holy Spirit by the Word of God is meant to change us, not a little bit, but radically that's not going on for significant portions of the church today. By the way, if you get a chance, read through James, five chapters. You could read through it in just a couple of minutes in the next weeks. And so those passages will be familiar to you as we read them, as we go through. But let me stop there. I will just tell you on the bottom of your study sheet, it gives you a breakdown. I hope to do 12 lessons uh, through the next, uh, whatever that would, takes us into May through James' letter, okay? If you would, stand with me and we'll... We'll close the teaching time by reading together from James 3. This was a passage that was super helpful to Mike. Read with me, please. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and 